We're continuing in Paul's uh, letter to the Ephesians, and this morning we're in chapter 5. And we will be looking at verses 8 through 14. It's Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand this passage so that we can live in a way more consistent with what it teaches, and in doing so, bring you not only pleasure, but great honor and glory, and find ourselves being used for the expansion of your your wonderful and loving kingdom. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the text that we read from the New Testament this morning, uh, Buried in that was a, a context that no, most people don't pick up when they read it. But it was talking about Jesus proclaiming, proclaiming himself as the, uh, the light of the world. We don't think much about when and where that happened. But in fact, uh, it's, it's really significant. Jesus was um, basically saying, using an allusion to a very uh, important event in the life of Israel... You remember that when Israel came out of Egypt, God led them by appearing both as a cloud during the day to protect them from the, the blazing desert sun and as a, as a pillar of fire by night so that they could see and stay warm in, in the cold desert. And uh, in many respects, God was in the tabernacle with them in that same form. And the Jews celebrated God's presence with the nation of Israel in a uh, celebration called the Illumination of the Temple. And that took place during the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, essentially what would happen was that uh, this, this illumination of the, tab, uh, the uh, Temple uh, was, a, um, was a really grand event. They built these, these four great big menorah. You know what a menorah is? Well, it's like a, it's a big candlestick with, I don't know, five or seven you know, things on top that hold oil and that. Well, they built four of them, and, and not small ones either. They were seven and a half stories high, right? Seventy-five feet high, so they were at least as tall as the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, at the top of each one was a bowl that held 65 liters of oil. And leaning against each one of these candelabra was a, uh, was a ladder, 
And on the night when they began the, the, this illumination, what they did was that these, I don't know, these priests must have really been young bucks because they had to haul 65 liters of oil up 75 feet to pour it in to the great bowls that held it on the top. And then they would light these wicks. And when they did, these, these flames would just explode off the top of these candelabra to such a degree that it did more than just light up the temple. It lit up literally the entire city. Now the Mishnah, which is a, a, an important Jewish book, tells us that at that point, men of piety and good works used to dance before the candelabra with burning torches in their hands, singing songs of praise, and countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals, and trumpets, and instruments of music. In other words, they began to party like crazy. They really went at it. So I want you to get the scene. Right? You got these 75 foot blazing torches. You got the smell of oil and smoke and shadows and fire. And you got these wild priests dancing around like crazy, bearded, persu- persu- you know, persu- that's the perspiring. Can't get the word out of my mouth. Perspiring, you know, and it's just, I mean, it's a real scene. The next day, the next morning, okay, these candelabra, they burned out. They're just these, you know what it's like when the candle burns out. It's just nothing left of it. And into this scene walks Jesus. And he cries out with these words, I am the light of the world. In other words, this one that you were celebrating last night by lighting these great candelabra, This one that you say led your people through the desert. This one who inhabited the temple of Solomon. This one who lived in the tabernacle in the desert with you. I am he. That's astonishing. And it stunned everybody who heard it. But Jesus was declaring something very central about his existence. About who he is. And in declaring that, really brings home to us one of the fundamental things we have to understand about him before we can understand what he's saying in this passage. Because, of course, in Matthew and in John, he's declaring that he is the light of the world. And here he says, you are the light of the world. That Is an incredible change. Why does he say that? How can he say that? I mean, we often think in terms of, you know, we reflect the light of Jesus Christ. We reflect his love. We reflect this. We reflect that, right? Like the sun reflects the, you know, or the moon rather reflects the rays of the sun. It doesn't have any power in itself to generate, but it reflects. But what Jesus says here is something fundamentally different. It's more than that we just reflect Jesus' love, more than we just reflect his kindness, his gentleness, his meekness, his strength, his wisdom, but that in fact somehow, because we are in him, it is ours. It is generated in and through us. 
Peter says we participate in the divine nature in some way that we don't understand. So it's, it's more here than just reflecting God to others. It's actually bearing his image and likeness in a way that is organic and part of us. What Paul goes on to say here is that because we are light, we have a huge responsibility in the world. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. How are we to live? He's been dealing with this for for quite a while now. And here he says there are three things. First, you've got to walk as children of light. You have to understand what it is, and you've got to walk that way, live that way. Here he says you have to act like light in relationship to darkness. Be what you really are. And then he finishes with a really interesting exhortation that you might think, you know, applies only to the 20th century church, but somehow applies to the church when he was writing this letter. And that's significant as well. So let's begin and look, see how he proceeds. Paul begins by, uh, by charging us, he says, walk as children of light, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, light, strictly, you and I both know, it doesn't bear fruit. But Paul is saying here that somehow the working of Christ in our lives does produce something. And what he says it produces is righteousness and goodness and truth. This this goodness, really, uh, is, is more like generosity. Being kind and being gracious. The idea of righteousness means dealing with integrity, not just with with God, but with with one another as well. And the whole idea of truth is fairly uh, descript. I mean, it means keeping falsehood, deception out of our lives and dealing honestly and openly with others. In a word, we are to have, uh, as it were, a sterling character. A character that really demonstrates We are what we say we are. But what makes a character like that shine? There was a a man once who was traveling and he he found this wonderful matchbox. It was in the days when they used to have a lot of candles and lanterns. And and he bought the matchbox and brought it home to his wife because it said it would glow in the dark. And he thought that was really a great thing. So he brought it home to his wife and and they... uh, the first night, they sat down, and they pulled it out, blew out the candles. It didn't glow in the dark. They were ticked. They felt like they'd been ripped off. So what's this about? Well, the next day, the wife was looking at it, and she notices on the side this, this little thing in French. I mean, she didn't speak French. So she took it to a friend, and the friend translated it for her, and The inscription said, if you want me to shine in the night, keep me in the light. Well, you and I both know, I mean, I used to have little submarines that you get in boxes of Rice Krispies that you could do that with. Yeah. Those of you who are my age, you you remember those kinds of things, okay? You had to hold them up to the light, and then when you turned off the light, they glowed. Well, it was the same with this matchbox. And it's the same with you and I. If we are going to glow with the character of Christ, just the way Moses did, for instance, when he, when he came down from the mountain, he literally glowed so much that people put you know, a, a rag over his head. Well, 
It means that we have to stay in the light. And here that simply means staying in the presence of Christ. In prayer, in the word, in the fellowship that we have with one another, whatever way we are able to do that. That's how we stay in the light. But Paul goes on, he says, you also, he says, you want to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. And then that's natural for people who have been changed. Because the scriptures tell us that when you've been changed by the Spirit of God, you do want to do what is pleasing to him, just the way Jesus did. I'm reminded of the, uh, the devout athlete uh, Eric Liddell, right, who went on to become a missionary to China. And, uh, and he, he said something really interesting about pleasing God. He said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. In other words, he understood there was a relationship between God's pleasure in him and his living out of his Christian life to the best of his ability. Not perfectly, but to the best of his ability. And what Paul is saying here is that you and I, each of us, have that same opportunity to understand the pleasure of God as we live our lives out before him to the best of our ability. And how do we do that? First of all, you have to know what it is that pleases God. Not all of us are fast runners, okay? Not all of us can fly high and, you know, do all the other things that Michael Jordan can do, for instance. But the scriptures do tell us that there is a character that is pleasing to God, a character that has love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control as part of it tells us that God is pleased when we, when we do what he wants us to do, when we stand for righteousness, when we're courageous in the face of, uh, of, of, uh, of angry people, when we're gracious at the same time. There are lots of things like that the scriptures tell us. But Paul's not just talking about going to the Bible and finding out what God likes and doesn't like. What he's saying is that when you live it, when you actually do those things, there'll be a confirmation in your own life as you live it out that these things actually do please God. And your own soul bears witness to the fact that it is good and right and pleasing in the sight of our God. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us that in very uh, wonderful words. In 5.14 he says, Solid food is for the mature, for those who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. In other words, they've they've made choices. They've recognized, okay, I made a bad choice here. I made a right choice here. They don't let those things kind of fall out of their memory. They keep them in place. They make assessments. They make personal adjustments. They pray. They depend upon God, and they seek to move forward in doing and living the way he wants them to. There's a great confirmation of what pleases God in our lives as we do that. Well, Paul goes on in verses 11 to 13. He talks about the fact that we're also to act like light in relationship to darkness. He says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, which of course he had mentioned in the prior verses that we looked at last week and the week before, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. 
Now, you and I both know that the, the effects of light and dark are very different, right? Um, if you just think scientifically for a moment, right? Darkness breeds things like disease and death. It does. Okay, where do germs grow? Right? They don't grow in the sunlight generally. They grow down in those musty corners of your bathroom that you haven't cleaned for years. Okay, that's, that's where they're found. All right, what happens if you take a tarp and lay it on your lawn for a couple of weeks? Does the grass grow nicely underneath it? Hardly. It dies. What happens when a doctor puts a cast on your leg or your arm for six or eight weeks? Does your, does your skin remain healthy and sweet as a baby? No, it dies. Right? When things are just exposed to the darkness, death and disease tend to take over. They tend to rule the day. And similarly, spiritual darkness produces what Paul talks about here in verse 11 as fruitless deeds. And that's what sin does. It, it lures us with the siren voices of, 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 of temptation to come and taste something that ultimately is destructive. Remember the sirens from Greek mythology, right? Right. They lived on this tiny little island. They had these sweet voices, and they sang. And they, what they did was they lured, they lured the sailors to their destruction and death on the rocky shoals. And that's what sin and temptation does. It lures us into spiritual darkness, where death takes over. Light, on the other hand, what? It promotes life. If you take a, take a flower off your patio, right, at the end of the summer, and you want to preserve it, you don't have to leave it outside where it will freeze. That would be certain death in New England. You could even put it down in your basement if you want. You can put grow lights, okay? It doesn't even have to be real sunlight. You can buy, you can buy neon lights to put up there, grow lights, and it'll, it'll survive perfectly well in your basement with just that kind of light. Broken bodies. Broken bodies heal faster when they're exposed to the light. You heal faster when you're exposed to light. How many people here suffer from whatever that, that syndrome it is during the winter, right? You just there's, there's too many cloudy days, right? You don't see enough sun. You get what? Depressed. Bummer. Okay? What? It's a lack of sun. It's a lack of light. When the sun comes up in the morning, I don't know what time you get up, but if you're up early enough, the sun literally wakes up creation. The birds start singing. I can actually hear them when I put my, my hearing aids in. But the birds start singing, you know, and the squirrels start running around. If they're living in your walls, it's even, even louder. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. I mean, when the sun comes up, things come alive. Why? Because the light comes. The birds aren't chirping at, you know, 3.30 in the morning. They just aren't. Squirrels are sleeping at 3.30 in the morning, and most of us are too. See, there's a a huge difference between light and dark and what it produces. 
And light travels just about everywhere. I mean, Paul says that. He says, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. Now, in view of this truth, what's Paul say we're supposed to do? He says, well, it's actually pretty explicit here. He says, don't participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but indeed, even expose them. Oops. Now, this is the part we don't like. Okay? All right. Tell me I don't have to, you don't want me to go do that bad thing? All right, I can hear that. Tell me you want me to expose that bad thing? That's very different. Okay? You and I, we both know we we live in a culture that values tolerance. Okay? Tolerance everywhere. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do. You're supposed to tolerate what everybody else does, no matter who they are, no matter what they do. In fact, the the motto of modern man is, I tolerate anything except people who don't tolerate things. But the simple fact of the matter is the scriptures don't allow us to be open-minded like that. They don't allow us to be non-judgmental like that. Because when scripture calls sin a sin... It requires of us that we do the same, whether it's in our lives or in anybody else's life, whether it's in a person or whether it's in an institution. We are not given given the freedom to ignore what we see in this world. That doesn't mean to say that somehow we're supposed to have license just to go around and you know shove sin down people's throats and say, yeah, you shouldn't be doing that. That's not what Paul's saying here either. But what he's saying is we need to have the courage to call a spade a spade. Joseph Bailey was a, uh, was a columnist and a very popular Christian writer uh, for, uh, for several decades. And uh, he was also a guy who was absolutely firm in calling sin, sin. Didn't, you know, didn't do it against just people on the left or just against people on the right. The guy was just firmly biblical. Didn't matter if it was an institution or if it was an individual. Didn't matter if the guy was uh, you know, crossing the line in politics or whether it was the abortion industry. To him, when he saw it, he named it for what it was on the basis of what Scripture teaches. And he had a lot of respect because he wasn't a name-caller. He was simply willing to say was was and that's what God requires of us that when we see theft we call it what it is theft is sin materialism is sin neglecting your kids is sin neglecting the poor is sin and it doesn't matter if it's inside the church or outside the church it's sin period and sometimes Jesus calls us to say it. Again, not in a judgmental way, because there isn't one of us that's free from sin. We all cross the line lots of times. But we are not given the freedom to turn our backs as if it doesn't matter. Or as if because it's been legislated or laws have been written in a particular direction, that it's now okay. Because God's word says it's not. That means you have to take the risk of being considered 
negative, narrow, judgmental. One of my favorites, puritanical or bigoted. And that's exactly what you'll be called. That's what you'll be considered if you take that stand. You also will be called righteous in the sight of God. Paul concludes now with this this admonition, this exhortation. It seems to just kind of come out of nowhere in verse 14. He says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, we, we really don't know what Paul's quoting here. Many commentators think that he was quoting a, an early apostolic baptismal hymn that sort of uh, uh, prefigured the uh, you know, person coming out of the water, uh, re- being removed from spiritual death, and coming into spiritual life. Well, Whatever its origin, Paul's exhortation is really clear. He believes that the church, even in his day, had lots of people in it who spiritually were sound asleep to what was taking place in the world around them and in their own lives because of their engagement with that world. It's really interesting. In the tropics of Central Africa, most of you have probably heard of this before, but there was a, a disease that was really prominent, especially uh, in uh, the early 1900s, called sleeping sickness. Okay? And uh, nobody really knew where it came from for quite a while, uh, but apparently it was a parasite that was trans, uh, transmitted by the tsetse fly, this tiny little fly that was everywhere. And uh, literally in, uh, in one uh, single province, between 1901 and 1904, it killed 100,000 people. 100,000 people died of sleeping sickness. Now, the interesting thing was that it was a painless disease. It didn't hurt. It caused drowsiness and sleep and then death. It's just kind of like, there you go. And there you stay. By the time they found out what the source was, that it came from this parasite and this tsetse fly, It was a revelation because people had made no connection whatsoever between this tiny little fly and the fact that people were dying. I mean, they they just went around and let it bite them. It didn't matter. It did matter. And once they understood that, they began to, to deal with it and they began to cut the brush away from the villages, move it back a little bit. They began to treat the area with insecticides, they began to knock down the, the, uh, the vitality of the breeding area for the tsetse fly, and pretty soon the, uh, the disease was nearly eradicated. Well, sin is like the tsetse fly, okay? It spreads disease, it causes spiritual sleep. It just, it just comes along, and, uh, and, and you don't see it coming, you don't think, recognize that thing as being really very dangerous, and it takes a little bite, and the next thing you know, you're falling asleep, and the sleep gets a little deeper, and pretty soon you're off the edge. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says, temptation and sin have such power to come and move into our lives in such a quiet, easy way that we have no idea how powerfully it is taking over. That's why he wants us to be on the alert. That's why he says, awake sleeper, and arise from the dead. 
We don't use language like that. You know, we, 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 we call it, you know, giving somebody a wake-up call, right? You give somebody a wake-up call, it's not just calling them in the morning to get them up so that they can get their airplane flight. It's you, you wake them up to the fact that there's, uh, you know, something that's threatening them. And, uh, and God knows we need it. It's true. We really do. I'll give you an example from my own life. This is how easy culture makes its way into your life in a way that uh, can just be so um, unexamined. Okay? Unexamined is a good word. All right. I want you to figure out what I'm doing here. Okay? Click. Tonight at 8 o'clock on ABC, click. Oh, he missed that score. Click. Oh, do you love me? Click. I'll take world history for 600, Alex. Click. Tonight, on World News Tonight, click. What am I doing? Anybody know? Okay. I am just like that. Okay? I can sit there with a remote control from the TV and I can go click, 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 click. And every time I do, what comes up on the screen is going to just come invading my thinking and washing over me. And it may be for seconds. I may leave it on for hours. You just don't know, do you? Right? I mean, who sets boundaries for watching television anyway? Okay? So I'm not thinking. What am I really allowing into my mind right now? How much time am I wasting doing this right now? Is this content building me up? Or is it tearing me down right now? See, if the truth be known, I don't want to be bothered by those questions. I don't want my wife to pose it. I especially don't want my children to pose it. And I don't want any of you to call while I'm doing it. Right? But but do you see? And you laugh because you all do it too. Do you see how easy it is for the unexamined life for us to be uncritical about the things that we so easily and naturally tend to do without thinking about what the effects of those things on us are? Are they putting us to sleep? Or are they sharpening us and preparing us further for the life that Christ has called us to live? There was a uh, there was a desert nomad who was uh, woke up in the middle of the night. He was hungry, and uh, so he lit lit a candle, and uh, he reached for a bowl of dates that he had. And beside his bed, and he took a bite from the first one. And as he looked at the other half of the date, he realized it had a worm in it. And so he, uh, you know, he threw the threw the thing outside the tent and uh, grabbed the second date. 
took a bite, looked at it, and realized that one had a worm in it too. So he threw that one outside the tent. And then, he was a pretty sharp guy. <laughs> he realized that um, he wouldn't have any dates left if he continued like that. And so he, he blew the candle out and quickly gobbled the rest of his dates. <laughs> If we deny what the light of the world tells us, that is that we are the light and we, are, and we refuse to live as the light, we're not going to be any better off than the nomad. We will, in fact, end up being what, what Peter writes of. We're going to be like dogs that return to its vomit. That is not the life that God has called us to. He has called us to walk as children of light, to do so especially in relationship to darkness, and to keep ourselves sharp, to keep ourselves from falling into spiritual slumber. May God grant us grace to do those very things. Let's pray. Father, we are, uh, we are grateful for your mercies to us. And not one of us is a, uh, uh, is a sinless person. Not one of us could stand before you more readily than another, except that Jesus Christ has uh, paid for our sin and our folly and our debt. And because of that, because you have determined that you love us, you have determined to forgive us, and you have granted us the privilege of being called your children, because of what you have done, we can stand before you with hope and with joy. And we pray this morning that you would continue to uh, encourage our hearts in that, that you are a God of extraordinary love, mercy, and kindness. And in those things, Lord, no matter what uh, difficulties or challenges we face uh, on any given day, we would do so knowing that you are our God and we are your people. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.